uh, throughout the region of Galatia. There were congregations of disciples who had come together, um, had been called to be the body of Christ in their communities. And Paul is writing this letter to them, writing to encourage them, writing to challenge them, writing to keep them on the straight and narrow. Uh, But he's writing out of love, not just for Christ, but also love for Christ's church. It is for the church that Christ died as he is... um, came to redeem the world, he leaves the church in the world to be a redemptive presence, to offer the hope of Christ uh, through the gospel and through the word and sacraments. And so Paul is writing, and the word of our Lord comes to us from Galatians chapter 3, as Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all sons, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that He might receive the adoption, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The scriptures tell us that we are children of God. And Paul says here that we are children of God specifically in Christ. As we noted last week, notice how for Paul, the language of salvation cannot be separated from the language of Trinitarian life. When Paul talks about what God has done for us, he cannot help but talk about what God has done in Christ, His eternal Son for us, and what God has done in Christ through the work of His Spirit. And so we have been made children of God in Christ, Paul says. And he says that we have become children of God. We have been invited into the family of God through faith. Through our response to the grace of God. He is the lover who pursues us. He is the one who came to the world to save it. He is the one who came to establish a church. And we, through faith, respond to Him. We are His beloved. And we receive His love freely in our lives. And we return that love to Him. And it's in that, you can call it a reciprocal process. I remember in in British literature, my senior year in high school, 
And I, ha- I don't think I've put my eyes on it since then, but I cannot get out of my mind. There was a sonnet that we read of unrequited love. And it was the song of, of a lover who loves his beloved, and yet that love is not returned to him. And I, I can't get that phrase, unrequited love, out of, my, out of my mind. And as I've gone through theology courses in college and seminary, and as I've prepared sermons on the topic, I can't get that sonnet out of my mind, unrequited love. But the love that we find in salvation, the love that we receive from God and the love that we give back to God as His children is not an unrequited love. It is a reciprocal <coughs> love. It is a love that receives from the, the, our, our lover, God, our Father, receives that love and then returns it in praise and adoration and thanksgiving and in faithfulness to Him. And so we've been made children of God in Christ through faith. But notice that for Paul, he cannot separate this spiritual life. He cannot separate this reality of being made members of the family of God from the act of baptism. He says, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now that may make us uncomfortable as as regretful beneficiaries of the enlightenment. I hate to put it that way, but that's honestly what it is. When we come to passages like this in the scriptures, we kind of squirm and worm and, you know, what's all this talk about putting on Christ in baptism and, and this idea of being made children of God through the waters of baptism. But it's there all throughout the New Testament. Paul cannot separate our response of faith in God and our being brought into the family of God from the act of baptism. The church is necessarily a sacramental body. There is a sacramental life within the family of God as God gives Himself to us mysteriously and we give our lives back to Him. We do so... um, We do so in the sacramental life of the church. That may make us uncomfortable, but it's certainly biblical. Baptism is about being brought into the family of God, being brought into that sonship that we have through Christ in faith. Paul then goes into a a, a section where he's talking about this, this idea of Jew and Greek and slave and free, male and female. Notice he does not deny the obvious differences between them. Certainly, a, a Jewish man is is uh, culturally different from a Greek man. In fact, that's one of the one of the things that's being fleshed out in the New Testament is. Okay, as the church is becoming increasingly more Greek, and as Paul is writing his letters, the Greek population of Christians is growing by leaps and bounds. They're multiplying, whereas the Jewish population within the church is just kind of adding. There's a huge difference between multiplying and adding. And so as the decades are rolling on in the New Testament, you have the Greek 
population and that Greek culture within the church that is growing and growing exponentially. But Paul says that within the one body, there's no distinction between the two. It's not as though God established two families where they can just kind of coexist together. And you've got the Greek family and you've got the Jewish family. Where you've got the slave family and then you've got the free Roman citizen family. Where you've got the male family and then the female family. He's not denying that there's any difference between these, but he's saying that all are one in Christ because we have been united in baptism. We've all come through the same waters of baptism. And we've all been made one in Christ because we've been brought into the same family. To the extent that Paul says, whether you are Greek or Jewish, whether you are a slave or a free man, whether you are a male or a female, we are all, through faith and by the waters of baptism, we are all Abraham's seed. Now that's interesting. Very interesting. One of the reasons that's interesting is notice the sign of covenant in the New Testament versus the sign of covenant in the Old Testament. The sign of covenant in the Old Testament was circumcision, which was provided only to men. The sign of covenant in the New Testament is baptism, which is for all. Now there's a reason that was the sign of covenant in the Old Testament. We can get into those details and particulars in another context. But all are invited into the family of God through the same waters of baptism. And all are therefore made beneficiaries of God's promises to Abraham, a Jewish man who is proudly a free man. You remember Jesus' interactions with the Jewish people as uh, some, of the, some of the scholars were challenging him. He talked about being free. And you remember one of their, one of their hang-ups, one of their stumbling blocks was, what are you talking about? You're going to make us free. We're children of Abraham. We've always been free. Forgetting, of course, the exodus from, uh, from Egypt and forgetting, of course, all of the oppression that they had endured uh, while in Palestine and all the oppression they continued to endure under, Roman, uh, under the Roman Empire. But what are you talking about? We're Abraham's seed. We're culturally a part of his family. Paul says here that we are spiritually made a part of his family and therefore we are beneficiaries of God's promises to Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And my faithfulness is not to you only, but is to your children and to your children's children. And to many, many generations down the road, I will always be faithful to my people. Paul says that we being made heirs by adoption, even as children 
We, are, we enjoy this, the, the benefits of being an heir. He says, even while, even while chi- uh, being a child, an heir is not all that much different from a slave. He's still under the authority of others. He still has to, to mind his manners. He's still got to uh, do what he's told. He's still got to fold his laundry and get it put up because the nanny said so or because mama said so. He's, he's in some ways like a slave. He's under the authority of others, under the authority of teachers and mentors and parents. But Paul kind of interjects the idea, though he is in some secret way, mysterious way, the master of all. So he is an heir, but he's still under authority. Paul says, so were we. We were under the authority of our moral teacher. Paul refers to it as the law. The Jewish people spoke of Torah, which was the law, as the term we use, but it's the instruction of God. It is God's teaching rubric to us. It it was a catechism of sort, where God brings us under this moral teacher to shape our minds, to shape the way we think of God, to shape the way we think of ourselves and others, and to shape the way that we relate to God and the way we relate to to others. Paul says we were once children also. We were under the authority of that moral teacher. We were under the instruction. We were being taught as children. You remember God's promise uh, in the in the Old Testament of a new covenant. And you remember Jesus' words on the night that he was betrayed as he instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He said, lifting up the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant which is in my blood that was old testament prophetic language remember the new covenant in the old testament prophets was not that god would forsake his law for something else but that god would put his law within our hearts so much so that the prophet said you won't have to teach one another Don't do this and don't do that. And make sure you do this and make sure you do that. Because God would live within our hearts and from the inside out, He would teach us. So Paul says that in the proper time, when the fullness of time had come, at just the right moment, God the Father sent His Son to bring us out from under that external and oppressive law and into the fullness of life. The fullness of a mature heir. One who knows how to live. One who, one who balances his checkbook because he, ba- he knows how to do his math. Not one who has to practice 2 plus 2 and 2 times 3 and that sort of thing. And so he says that that Christ came, the Son of God came, bringing us freedom, bringing us into the fullness of life as the children of God. And Paul says that because we have been made children of Him through adoption, He's put His spirit of adoption within our hearts. And he says that spirit cries out, Abba, Father. 
That spirit gives us the assurance that we are children of God. Now, you can make a huge to-do over this phrase, Abba, Father. And yes, it is a a term of endearment, uh, kind of akin to us referring to our fathers as dad or daddy. But here, Paul's not talking about just some cheap sentimentality that we can have for God, but the fact that we, through the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us, we have the confidence and the assurance of knowing that we've been made children of our Father. That He has adopted us into His family. That He has put His seal upon us through His Spirit. That He's brought us in. That we're not outsiders gazing in through the windows, wondering what it's like to be a part of that family. He's actually brought us into the family. And the spirit of adoption. Notice Paul refers to the spirit here as the spirit of the Son. The spirit who the Son would pray to the Father to send. The Spirit who Jesus said would would come and teach us all things and would take from Christ what He had learned. And remember Christ said, look, I'm not speaking on my own authority. I'm simply speaking what I hear my Father saying. So you've got this inner life of the Trinity working itself out even in Paul's language of what God has done in saving us. That Christ came to teach us what the Father wanted. And to be obedient to the Father. And He is sending a Spirit who would come and take from Christ what He's received from the Father and give to us and lead us on into it. And Paul says that Spirit of Jesus lives within our hearts because the Father wants us to know that He is indeed our Father. That He's brought us into His family. That we have been adopted as His children. And so we've become children of the Father. We are, he says it's because of this. That we are no longer slaves. But we're children. We are sons and daughters of the King. We have been brought in. To the life. Of the family of God. He has made us. To be His children. He loves us. He cares for us. And He wants us. To sit at His table. To partake of His meal. He wants us to enjoy life within the family. And Paul says, If we've been made children of God, then not only are we sons and not only are we daughters, but we are even heirs through Christ. In other words, we are beneficiaries of what God has done. We are the recipients of what He has redeemed and what He has created. We are the recipients of what He has prepared for us. We are His heirs. Not so that we can cling to our rights, but so that we can gladly receive what God has done in redeeming us and in bringing us into His family. One of the reasons I uh, so greatly love the church is because it is in the church that we 
are guaranteed that we are not alone. Not just that we're not alone in the fight and in the struggle, but we've been brought into a different family. Not divorcing us from our old family, not not telling us that our family at home is obsolete or illegitimate or anything like that, but we have been brought into a larger family. It's almost like joining the mob, right? Sometimes, you know, Lindsay jokes with me because when we go to Pastabella, I like getting the... um, the big round tables, and we've got the kids all around, and i got my arms up, and you know, I'm acting like a big mob boss or something. I'm, I'm being very lighthearted. But uh, uh, in the family of God, we've been brought into this family that is not ours by birthright. You know, we're not just the spoiled brat kids who are inheriting a large sum of money because we happen to be lucky enough to get certain genes. We've been brought into the family gladly and freely. We've been invited in. My dad um, is adopted. And I remember, I remember when I first discovered that or heard that when I was a kid, I was like, really? I had never known. I was pretty young at the time. But since then, I've, I, I've been kind of, um, not puzzled, but enamored with that idea in some sense. I've, you've probably heard me say before, I don't know what it is to be adopted. But one of the things that my dad has always said about it is that it brings a sense to him that he was chosen. His parents said, you are not ours by birth, but we want you to be in our family. We want to love you as our very own. We want to provide for you. We want to feed you and clothe you. We want to help you create a world that is happy, and we want you to feel secure here. Now, my parents had to raise me. You know, they, they had to just put up with it. <laughs> I think there comes a, a point where the decision's made and you can't go back on it. But um, that's the sort of language that Paul is using when he talks about the church as God's family, brought into the family, brought to the table by adoption. He's given us His Spirit. He has, he has initiated the, the, the love. He has given us His love without strings attached, without any reservations. He has said, I love you and I want you to be in my family. What do you say? And so when we're brought into the life of the church, you know, families always have kind of rites and, and uh, ceremony and traditions and things like that. And I'm not saying that uh, the sacraments are simply that. 
But one of the things that this family has done, because God has ordered it, is that when we welcome someone into the family, we welcome them through the waters of baptism. Sometimes as children, you know, one of the things I I always say about infant baptism is, you're either going to raise them to be a child of God or a child of the devil. There is no middle ground. What are you going to raise them to be? And notice that kind of fits with Paul's language here. Even while the heir is a child, even before he's reached maturity, even though even before he's received the inheritance for which he's been made an heir, he's still the heir. And so God welcomes us into His family. Not just in some cosmic church level that yes, we share membership in the family that is enjoyed in Russia and Mexico and Canada and England. Not just in that sense. That sense as well. But in a in a particular sense, as we are called to be a congregation of God in our community, we are called into His family. And we're called to live out what it is to be His children. Because He's given us His Spirit. He's made us His children. And we have been made heirs through Christ. And so as His family, He brings us in. He washes us, bathes us in baptism. And He feeds us at His table. Where His eternal Son says, Take and eat. This is my body. Take and drink. This is my blood of the new covenant. And we're called to not just come and be washed, not just come and be filled, but we are called then to go and live as sons and daughters of the King. We are called to go out into the world. To live the life of this family. To bear the family resemblance in our community. So that through our lives, through our word and testimony, we can invite others into the family. Feeling alone? I've got a place where everybody knows your name. Sometimes you just want to go there. You can be a part of the family. And so, again, there's this receiving and responding element. In grace, we receive and respond in faith. We receive the love of God and we return that love. We receive from Him nourishment for our souls and rest for our souls. And we're then beckoned out to live 
and to exhaust ourselves again. Because when we exhaust ourselves in God's world, God's world gets a taste of God's life through the church. So we come, we're bathed, and we're fed, and we're sent out to live. I love... uh, I love the symbolism and the ceremony. Uh, you know, you might have noticed the, the candles. You know, the, the church traditionally has had a couple of candles. And those candles represent the two natures of Christ. That He is both divine and human. Fully God and yet fully man. They represent Him as the light of the world. Some churches have acolytes where they begin the service by, by children proceeding in. And they wear their, their black garments covered with a white cloth representing the darkness of sin that is covered by the light of righteousness and they come in bearing the light of Christ and they light the candles and it's always kind of neat because the kids rule the service because the service isn't over until after the, 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 the pastor gives the benediction those acolyte children come up and they receive again the light they snuff out the candles and then they lead the congregation out out of the sanctuary, representing that this light is not supposed to be kept in the church. It is supposed to be taken out into the world by the church. You might wonder why Daniel and I wash our hands before, before touching the elements. Well, there's a number of reasons. Lura has pointed out before she appreciates seeing us wash our hands, knowing that we're being clean, but also those waters remind us of the waters of baptism. They remind us of how we've been brought to the table, that God has washed us. He's brought us into His family. You may wonder, why do we use one loaf and one cup? Why do we, why do we dip? Well, it is in keeping with that language of Paul that there is one body, We are called to be one body. We are called in unity to share of one meal together. There are a lot of things that families do. We have family traditions at Thanksgiving and Christmas and Christmas Eve. and We have family traditions of the 4th of July and all sorts of things. The family of God has a number of traditions. Those traditions are given to us by God Himself and those that we create for ourselves, like the numbers of candles and things like that, they help point our eyes to what God has done for us. Let us pray. Father, as we come to You, we come to receive from You Your grace, and we come to return to You our faith. We come to receive from you your great love for us and we come to express to you how feebly but but deeply we want to love you. Lord, we come to receive from you nourishment from our soul for our souls from your son. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace and the strength to walk in the world to be in it and not of it, to be the light of Christ in the world, to live as those who resemble 
the family. Lord, we thank you for inviting us in. We thank you for making room for us within yourself. We thank you for making a home for us. We thank you for all that you have done in redeeming us. And we thank you for your spirit who lives in our hearts and cries out, Abba, Father. We thank you for the assurance of knowing that you've made us to be your people and to be members of your family. And we pray that as we prepare ourselves to come and to receive from you at your table, that you would search us, that you would quicken us, that you would push us and challenge us where we need to be pushed and challenged, that you would remind us that all good and perfect gifts come from you, the Father of lights, and remind us that we've been made to be members of your family. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.